Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to join you guys for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we would love to get to know you, help you get plugged into the community here at River City. So uh, excited as well. Continue walking our way through the book of Nehemiah this morning. Uh, if you have been gone or maybe you're new uh, or you're just visiting this morning, let me catch you up briefly on where we're at and then we'll uh, dive into our passage again this morning. So book of Nehemiah, like every Every other book in the Bible is not really a book about Nehemiah or the other authors that have that our God uses to write them, but they're really all stories about God. They're revealing to us something about who he is and what he's like and what he's done. And, and the story that we find about God in Nehemiah is all about showing how God is a God who is not just sovereign and in control, but that he, because of his sovereign authority, that he is also faithful to keep his promises. And what we see happening throughout the book is that God's using Nehemiah to bring about the fulfillment of promises that he's made to his people and promises to forgive and redeem and restore them and, and to once again cause them to be a community of people who will live for the glory of God and the praise of God. And, and that story begins in, in chapter one, <coughs> excuse me, with Nehemiah. He's serving as the cupbearer to the great Persian king Artaxerxes, one of the most powerful kings in the world at the time. And well, he's there, he receives this report from his brother about the sad state of Jerusalem, and he finds out how the, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and burned, and the God's people there are in great trouble and disgrace. And what happens is, although this wasn't new information to Nehemiah, in fact, it would have been about 140-year-old information, uh, he would have known about what happens is that although it wasn't new, it ca God causes it to hit him in a new way. What happens is that God, God begins to give Nehemiah his own heart for the situation. And what happens is Nehemiah's heart breaks over the reality that the, the condition of Jerusalem's walls and the disgrace that God's people there are in is really ultimately proclaiming a message about God himself. That a message of shame and disgrace about God's own name. And so because Nehemiah delights, we see in chapter 1, to revere God's name. He knows he has to do something about it. And so after months of praying and planning and seeking God, we see that Nehemiah goes to King Artaxerxes and he not only asks him for a bunch of time off of work at his very important job as a cupbearer, but he also asks this king to personally fund and endorse this project. And despite the fact that this very same king had just a few years prior put the kibosh on any and all rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem. And and so it's a truly bold request, but because the reality is that it's not Nehemiah's plan, it's really God's thing, that God's the one who is orchestrating and all the king responds, uh, he says yes. And so armed with the clear support, not only of the Persian king Artaxerxes and his resources, but more importantly with the support and resources of God, Nehemiah embarks on the 900 plus mile journey from Susa all the way back to Jerusalem. And he gets there, he, he goes to his fellow Israelites and he tells them about what God's put on his heart to do to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to remove the disgrace that their dilapidated condition is shaming God's name with. And, and he tells them about all that God's already done in changing the heart of King Artaxerxes and in providing resources and, and support for this project. And in response, what you see is in chapter three is that God's people are all in. Right? People from every part of society come together wholeheartedly to begin the work of rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem. And, and things are going really well, like really great, until you get to chapter 4. And what you find is that in chapters 4 through 6, it's just one opposition after the next. It is just 
It's, it's the worst, right? We saw in chapter 4 how that opposition wasn't just external, it was internal, right? It came in the form of external ridicule and mockery and even threats of violence from guys like Sambalot and Tobiah and their gang. But it also came in the form of internal opposition, right? Whether that was just fear for people or whether that was discouragement or just plain exhaustion. And we saw last week in chapter 5 how that internal opposition to God's kingdom building work, that, that it also takes the form of corruption and injustice inside the people of God that we saw stemmed from a hearts that are consumed by selfishness and greed. We saw how instead of seeing the rebuilding efforts as an opportunity to promote the welfare of God's people and to increase God's name and his glory, what we saw is that some of the wealthier Jews, they were just approaching it as an opportunity for personal gain, right? At the expense of their poor brothers and sisters, what they were using it to take advantage of those who were hurting in this time by giving themselves to the building of the wall, and so they were taking advantage of them financially, and in response to all that, we saw how Nehemiah not only rejects a, a, a personally a life of selfishness and a life pursuing selfish gain, but instead embodying God's own sacrificial generosity, we saw as well that he calls the people of God towards that. And he, he motivates them not with guilt and shame and duty and obligation, but instead he motivates them by uh, using, a, a, he reminds them about the fear of God. Right, not as in a terror or being afraid of God, but in the, the idea in the Old Testament about fear, the fearing God is about having this overwhelming awe and reverence for who God is and all he's done that, that drives what we do and how we live. And so as we study how Nehemiah responds to the continued opposition we see him facing in chapter 6 this morning, what I want to show you as we study is that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is that it's the same fear of God. It's the same awe and reverence for who God is and all that he's done that actually empowers Nehemiah to say no to all kinds of other fears that he faces in the passage. And instead of giving in to fear, what we see him doing is pressing on faithfully in the work that he knows that God has called him to. And man, there's so much good stuff here this morning. Uh, I can't wait to show it to you, but let's pray before we dive in. We will certainly need God's help this morning, so... God, we're grateful to get to come to you this morning and to open your word together, and we're just grateful that you love to meet us as we study your word. You want to show yourself to us, and you want to speak to us, and so we're so grateful that this letter, this book of Nehemiah that's thousands of years old is not old and out of date, but it is intensely relevant for our lives. And so, God, as we, your people, seek to live as your people in the world for your glory, we pray that you would show us in the story this morning what that looks like and how we can be a people who aren't driven by fear of men, but by our fear of man, but, but are driven and consumed by a fear of you, not as in terror, but in a joyful reverence of you, God. And so we ask that you would do all of that, God, for our good, but more than anything, so you might be glorified in and through our church. And we ask it this morning. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, <coughs> excuse me. We are in Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning. We're going to be starting verse 1, going through the first couple of verses of chapter 7. It reads this way. When word came to Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and gates... Sambalot and Geshem sent me this message saying, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. 
And so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalot sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was his unsealed letter in which was written, It's reported among the nations, and Gesem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem, that there is a king in Judah. Now, this port will get back to the king, and so come, let's meet together. And I sent him this reply, nothing like what you are saying is happening, and you are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now God, strengthen my hands. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delaiah, the son of Mahelatabel, who was shut in in his home. And he said, uh, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. And I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. And he had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. And so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid, and they lost their self-confidence because what they realized was that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehoahan had married the daughter of Meshullam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and, they, and telling me him uh, what I said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. And after the wall had been rebuilt... And I had set the doors in place. The gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. But I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. Then I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them, and also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts, and some near their own houses. All right, so a lot going on in our passage this morning. A whole lot of names you probably don't understand, or neither do I, and I probably mispronounce, but a lot of important stuff as well that's happening here, right? Nehemiah begins chapter 6 by telling us that the, the walls that he's trying to rebuild in Jerusalem, they're almost finished. And that all that was left was to put the gates back on their hinges, right? You put the gates on the hinges and then everything will be finished. And in spite of all the opposition that they've been facing, whether internal or external, it sees that this project, it's nearing completion. It's almost finished. 
which is causing Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem and the rest of all the enemies of God, uh, they're just starting to get desperate, honestly, right? Instead of giving up, they double down on their opposition. And what you see is that up until now, their opposition has been very overt, right? They're openly mocking and ridiculing and threatening God's people. But in chapter six, what you see is that they try to the kind of covert, subversive approach, right? right? They're like, if the out front, blatant kind of opposition, if that's not working, we're gonna try the sneaky way, right? We're gonna try the, the insidious kind of way. And what you see throughout the passage is that they kind of utilize four different schemes that they're trying to use to try to thwart the work of rebuilding the wall and the rebuilding of the kingdom. And the first one you see is in verses one through four. You see that the first scheme that they, they try to implement is just simply a deceptive distraction, right? Sambalot and Geshem, they send Nehemiah a message, right? They say, come, let's, let's meet in the plains of Ono, right? And on the, on the face of it, their, their invitation seems pretty harmless, right? Could, easy could be for one to think, you know, like, well, after all the threats of violence didn't work, maybe they're just deciding, you know, let's take the political approach, right? Let's have a, a summit, a meeting of the minds out in the, out in the plains of Ono, right? And that would have been about a location about 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Would have been about a one and a half to two day journey to kind of get there. And it's a location that would have been seen as kind of a neutral ground, right? Uh, Sanballat is from uh, Samaria and um, Nehemiah is obviously from Jerusalem and that would have kind of been a middle ground between those two places. Um, but Nehemiah sees right through their veiled attempt to draw him away from the work on the wall and out into the middle of nowhere to most likely just kidnap and then kill him, right? And so he repeatedly refused their seemingly relentless invitations. Verse three, he tells them, um, I'm carrying on a great project. And I cannot come down, right? Now, this is just a side note here, but moms, this might become, some of you, your new life verse, right? Like, you got kids all the time, mom, 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 right? And you just respond, you know what? I have a great project and I cannot come down, right? It's biblical, right? Just use that next time, see how that works for you, right? In all seriousness, though, I, I think there's really something profound about Nehemiah's response here, right? He, he sees the work that God has called him to in rebuilding the walls of God's city and, and the people therein as supremely important. As supremely important, right? He refuses to divert any time and any effort from that work, especially for discussions with enemies that at best are going to be fruitless and at worst are going to be deadly, Right? A more foolish leader or someone with an inflated sense of self-importance or a desire for the approval of other influential leaders, right? It would have been easy for them to kind of convince themselves that taking time off of the important work of rebuilding the wall, that that was really worth it, right? right? And, and we should really be diplomatic and we should do this kind of thing, right? But as we saw last week, Nehemiah is not burdened with the pursuit of selfish gain. He's not consumed with the desire for power or influence, Instead, what he cares about most is the increase of God's name and his glory and the good of God's people. And so Nehemiah is not tempted by this deceptive distraction to kind of this political summit to kind of, uh, kind of just uh, like affirm his ego, right? You see, I, I think it can be really easy for us to look back in hindsight as well at Nehemiah's decision here not to get distracted and to think, yeah, Nehemiah, you really, were, you really were doing a great work. I mean, it made it into the Bible of all things, right? Like that, that, really, that really is an important work. But the reality is, is that looking through the front, the front windshield of Nehemiah's life, right, that would have been an, uh, an exercise in faith, right? 
really believing that what God had called them to mattered, you know? And especially because the world around him would have called the work that he was doing back in Persia great, important work, right? There he was the cupbearer to the king who was the most powerful king in the world at the time, right? He would have been had a high-level overseer in the capital city in the king's palace taking a look and overseeing everything that would have come in contact with the king. And he would have had the trust and the ear and therefore influence with the most powerful king in the world at the time. What you see is that Nehemiah left all of that to go rebuild the walls of a mostly abandoned and destroyed city and to seek the welfare of a people who had long since been conquered and defeated. You see, in the, in the world's eyes, Nehemiah left a great work to do something that didn't matter. It's pointless, right? And yet what you see is that Nehemiah understands that the work that God was calling him to do in Jerusalem was not great because the world said it was great. It mattered because God said it did. And that makes all the difference for him. And I want to encourage you, church, the work that God has called each of us into is ultimately to be a people, as God's people, to be his image-bearing people in the world and to reflect with our attitudes and with our actions and in our community the very nature and character of God so that he might be rightly worshipped in and through our lives and so that people might come to know and love and follow him as they see him lived out in and through us. And that reality, what it does is it gives immeasurable meaning and purpose to even the mundane things in our lives. If we would see them as things, as opportunities to reflect the very glory and goodness of God, it it infuses immeasurable meaning and purpose, greatness into even the little unseen things in our lives. I want to encourage you with that, church. While the great work that you and I are called to doesn't involve building an impressive wall that people can look at, the reality is is that the great work that we and Nehemiah are both called to is really the same. It's to be a people who care about and who give our lives for the increase of God's name and his glory and for the good of others. It's really the same. And it's a work that is of great importance and one that we should be very careful to make sure we don't get distracted from thinking that something else really matters more. And so Nehemiah, he sees through the deceptive distraction of this political summit and instead he remains focused on rebuilding the efforts of the wall. After the fourth time that he says, oh no, to going to oh no, right? Sambalot decides, that was a great joke, people. Like, that was legitimately good. Nothing? It hurts a little, right? A little bit, it does. So Sambalot decides that he needs to change his tactics, right? Uh, and, and we see he moves on to scheme number two, which is basically a combination of slander and blackmail. And you see that in verses five through nine, right? See how the next time Sambalot invites Nehemiah to meet with him, he, he also sends his messenger with this conveniently unsealed letter, right? outlining some very seditious rumors about Nehemiah's motives for rebuilding the wall. And in the letter, he basically writes, right, kind of tongue-in-cheek, he says, you know, Nehemiah, I hear, right? I've been, I've been hearing some things, right? I've been, a little birdie came and told me something, right? And what I hear is that the people are saying that the reason that the Jews are rebuilding the wall is because you guys are planning to revolt, 
and, and that you are planning to become their king, it would be a shame. It would be a shame if King Artaxerxes found out about that. Wink, wink. You know, like, it's a very veiled threat, right? And it's a threat that would have really carried a lot of extra weight because what you find is that that's the same threat that guys like Sambalot used in just previously in the prequel to Nehemiah in the book of Ezra. That's the very same notions that they used to get King Artaxerxes to stop the rebuilding efforts just about 10 years prior. And to top it all off, the, the fact that this was an unsealed letter which could have easily been read while it was in transit meant that Sambalot wasn't just threatening to tell the king about these rumors, but he was threatening to kind of circulate them widely and to, and to cause other people to, to hear these rumors and to think badly about Nehemiah. Now, I don't know about you, but stuff like that really ticks me off. It is, it is just the worst because the reality is, is that there just isn't a lot that you can do about lies and false accusations other than deny it, right? Like there just isn't much you can do, right? And the reality is that that's what Nehemiah does. We see verse eight, right? It says, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening and you are just making it up out of your head. It's all there is, no more, Right? You see, what happens is Nehemiah refuses to entertain the rumors or, don't miss this, to try to just defend himself, right? He responds only to deny their truth and to state their original or their true origin. And then he moves on. He moves on. And he leaves it all in God's hand. He simply asks God, I need you to give me the strength to keep pressing on, right? God, uh, he does the same thing as well again in verse 14, right? When there's a bunch of these false prophets who are opposing him, he says he entrusts those who oppose him to God, knowing that God's gonna be the one who judges justly and who vindicates those who are righteous. And so he's not venting to his coworkers about what's going on and about how he's being wronged and he's not internally stewing over the situation and he's not taking Sambalot to court in his mind, outlining all the reasons why Sambalot's really the bad guy and why he's really right and all that's going on. Instead, we see he just prays and then he continues to press into the work that he knows that God's called him to and he moves on, which... I can imagine at this point is driving Sandalot insane, right? Like he is on to option triple F, right? Like he is, we are three chapters in to opposition going on and he is just like, what is it gonna take with this guy, right? But he's not ready to give up yet, right? We see that deceptive distraction didn't work and slander and blackmail didn't work. We see in verse 14, they try a third option. The third scheme is this. They, they, they try to get Nehemiah to discredit himself with the people. And they know that Nehemiah is on to them, right? And that he's not really intimidated by them at all. And so what they do is that they, they, they need to find another angle. And so they start paying off false prophets. Uh, we find later in, in the verse 14 or later on in the passage that it's not just one guy, it's a bunch of prophets that they're trying to pay off to, to get Nehemiah to discredit himself. But this one guy that tells the story about Shemaiah and uh, he calls Nehemiah to his house under the pretenses that, the false pretenses that he obviously has some kind of a message from God for him, right? And when Nehemiah gets there, Shemaiah recommends that they actually go meet in the temple and that they close the doors because uh, people are coming to kill him. And again, Nehemiah sees right through the, the schemes, realizing that this is not God's voice and not God's direction. Uh, besides the fact that this dude who is claiming to be a shut-in immediately suggests they go somewhere else for a meeting Nehemiah already came for, right? Uh, 
Besides that, the reason Nehemiah knows that this dude is a false prophet is that what he encourages him to do is something that God's word would have expressly forbid, right? And this is just a side note here, but if you want to know how to tell when what someone has to say is in line with God, what God would have to say, uh, check it against what the Bible has to say, right? And if people are giving you suggestions or advice to do something that the Bible says not to do, then spoiler alert, you know they're not talking on God's behalf, right? Because that makes no sense whatsoever, right? So Nehemiah, he, he knew that God's law made clear that only priests were allowed to enter the inner temple for no matter what the reason, right? Even the great King Uzziah was struck with leprosy when he proudly tried to enter the temple and burn incense in taking the place of a priest. And, and so Nehemiah realized that if, if he had done what Shemaiah had suggested, not only would he be sinning against God, but he would be undermining every ounce of credibility he had with the people of God, that he was someone who was being led by God to do this project, right? One commentator puts it this way. He says, had he tried to save himself in such a way, he would have probably lost his life, certainly lost his honor, and either way, jeopardized the very project that God had put in his heart to do. So Nehemiah, he refuses to sin against God and to discredit himself before the people and instead to press in faithfully to the work that God's called him to in building the wall. What you see is the result in verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. 52 days, right? In spite of the magnitude of this project, in spite of all the opposition, right? The walls of Jerusalem, which had lain broken down, burnt by fire for 140 plus years, have now been rebuilt in just 52 days. If that's not striking enough, what you find when you go back to chapter one is that what you realize is that Nehemiah spent more than twice as much time praying and planning about the project that he was going to do than it even took to do the project, which just further goes to cement what we see that Nehemiah's enemies already get. Right, is that it's not Nehemiah doing the project. It's not his thing, right? It's God's thing. God who's is the one who's behind it, right? Right? He says that they realized that they lost confidence in themselves and they became afraid because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God, right? Now, I just want to be clear here. That verse, when it talks, Nehemiah says that this has been done with the help of our God, it's not meant to communicate, right, that God was like an assistant in the project, right? That he like, you know, played a helping hand, that he, you know, kind of helped out somewhere along the way. He provided some extra support. No, that phrase, what's meant to communicate is that God is the one who was behind the whole thing that he's the one who orchestrated all of it and that without him, there is absolutely no way that any of this would ever have happened. And then, just as soon as we find out that the walls have been completed, Nehemiah just moves on and we find out that there is still yet more opposition because apparently haters are gonna hate and that's just all there is to it, right? Op the walls are rebuilt, it feels like they've won, but the opposition doesn't stop, right? Read in verse 17 through 19 about how Tobiah is continuing to try to sow disunity and create division by getting the nobles and the officials who are loyal him to speak well of him and obviously, conversely, to speak poorly of Nehemiah, right? Instead of being loyal to God's people and God's name, we see that many of these nobles are apparently more loyal to their business agreements with Tobiah or their family connections with him. 
And so Nehemiah, we see, he doesn't even respond to this last scheme. I love how he's just like, I'm out, guys. Like, we're not, I'm not even dealing with this one in person, right? Instead, what we see is that in verse 1 through 3 of chapter 7, he, he appoints men to be in charge of guarding the city gates. And what's so important that you note here is that the qualities that he looks for in these guys, right? You would think that if you're appointing somebody to be in charge of security of a city, like in those days, like you would pick the dude with the most muscles, right? Or like the guy with the most intimidating appearance or like the dude who has the most military experience. Now, that's not what Nehemiah looks for, right? He says that he picks these two guys, right? Instead, because they are men of integrity who fear God more than most. Men of integrity who fear God more than most. Why? Why is that the criteria Nehemiah uses to appoint these people who are going to guard the city? Right? Well, if you look back on the chapter, what you notice is that all of the schemes that Sambalot and Tobiah and the rest of their posse are implementing, they really all have one common thread. Right? And, and it's that they're all intended to instill fear in Nehemiah and the people of God so that they'll stop working. That's the whole point, right? Verse 9, they were trying to frighten us. Verse 13, they had been hired to intimidate me. Verse 14, the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. Verse 19, Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me, right? What Nehemiah gets is that these guys he's appointing to be leaders, right? To be overseers, to be ones who help protect the city is that the only way that you overcome fear is by having a greater fear, right? And if that greater fear is God himself, then it's gonna drive out all the other fears so that the way that you act is in line with God's word and his purposes, right? You see, church, it's, this, it's the fear of God. It's this overwhelming, controlling desire to honor and revere him and his name, that that's the thing that, that drives out all of Nehemiah's other fears and that enables him to endure opposition and to say no to fear of people and all that they can do and to instead faithfully press into the work God's calling him to. We saw in the first few verses how the fear of God's the thing that drove out Nehemiah's fear of being insignificant, right? He knows that the work that God has called him to is great, that it is supremely important that it matters, not because the world says it matters, but because God does. He's the one who says it matters. And so the validation of power that attending a political summit like this would have given him by being with other influential leaders, it doesn't tempt him. And it doesn't distract him because he's not afraid of being insignificant. He's not afraid of being seen by other influential people as someone who doesn't matter. Because he knows that the most significant one of all has already called and appointed him and given him a work that is worthwhile and that matters. We see as well that the fear of God is the thing that drives out his fear of being misrepresented and maligned and having his reputation damaged. Right? He doesn't need to defend himself against lies and false accusations. Right? He simply denies them and moves on. Because what he knows is that, is that God's the one who knows what is true. And he's the one who judges in the end. And that he's going to bring about the right, he's going to vindicate who he's going to vindicate. And he doesn't make mistakes. And so instead, Nehemiah just remains faithful, showing with his life what is true. We see as well that the fear of God even drives out Nehemiah's fear of physical danger, right? He's more concerned about sinning against God 
than he is about even being attacked, right? Uh, He's more concerned about sinning against God by going into the temple than protecting himself from whatever attacks might be thrown his way. He trusts what Proverbs 29, 25 says, that, that the fear of man will prove to be a snare and a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is always kept safe. That's not all, though. We see that the fear of God is driving out his fear of being disliked. The fear of being, uh, having his approval removed by these influential nobles and officials who are loyal to Tobiah. We already saw last week in chapter 5, right? He's willing to confront these influential, wealthy people in their sin because the only person whose opinion matters to him is God's. He's concerned about what God thinks about him. And what God says is right and true and good, not what anyone else thinks. And so he is free to sacrificially and confront and confrontationally love the people that he's serving because he doesn't need their approval. He already has God's and that's the one that matters. And so the question that you have to ask this morning is, how do you get that kind of a fear-relieving fear? How do you get that kind of a fear-relieving fear? I mentioned this last week, but... I think the great hymn Amazing Grace really sums it up best. The second verse, uh, Newton writes this way. He says, Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. You see, what he's writing about there, what Nehemiah gets is that it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that both causes us to fearfully revere the name of God that also drives out all our other fears, right? When you see that the almighty king and creator of the universe willingly died for you, as Hebrews says, for the joy set before him endured the cross on your behalf. When you get that, when you see how powerful and mighty and and in control God is, and yet you see that he is not just immeasurably powerful, but that he is altogether good. And then he gives grace to those who absolutely do not deserve it. Then what happens is you'll be able to have a fear and an awe and a reverence and a worship of God that drives out all your other fears. It's a fear of God that's going to drive out your own fears of being seen as insignificant. It's a fear of God that drives out your fears of, of being uncomfortable It's the fear of God that's going to drive out your fears of not being in control. It's the fear of God that's going to drive out your fears that consume you about what other people think about you. Because what the gospel says is that God sees you as one who is loved and valued. So you don't need what other people have to say. And so you'll be empowered to live a life for God's name and his glory and the good of others because all of your insignificant fears will be overwhelmed by an overwhelming fear of God. And it's not a terror or fear of him, right? But it's one that allows us to have a joyful reverence for him. One commentator sums it up this way. He says it like this. One of the key strategies of faith is to tackle fear not by belittling the fear or wishing it away, but by taking our eyes off of that which makes us afraid and looking to God. 
He says, we can bank on God's goodness. For we have seen him send his only son to die on our behalf. If he has done the hardest thing, will he not surely care for us in all the rest? It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believe. Church, it is the grace-taught fear of God that drives out all our other fears so that instead of being driven and consumed by all these little insignificant things, instead we get to confidently live in a joyful reverence for the king who rules and reigns over everything. It's it's God's incredible grace towards us. That's what we're remembering every week when we celebrate communion together, right? We're reminding ourselves that the great king and the creator of the universe, the glorious sovereign ruler and one who reigns over everything, in love sacrificed his own body to be broken and allowed his blood to be shed for your good so that you might receive a grace from him that drives out all your other fears. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's an opportunity for you to remember Jesus. To remember him and all that he's done. You see what Jesus does on the cross, on our behalf and in his resurrection, what he does is that he drives out the greatest fear of all, the fear of death. Right? And so if Jesus has removed our greatest fear, then it puts everything else into its proper order. And we can trust him. And so when you're ready during our time of worship, I'd encourage you, go back and take communion. If you put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, if you have not a terror of God, but a joyful reverence for him, then go back during communion Dip the bread in the juice or take one of the communion packs back to your seat, but do it as a way to remember God's grace made known to you which drives out all your other fears. But if not yet, if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, if he is someone you can really trust, then one, I want you to know that he is, but two, I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God's not after going through the motions and just religious rituals. He wants a heart that trusts him completely. One that's not afraid of being judged by him, but because of faith in the cross, has a joyful reverence and confidence in him. And if this morning you do put your faith in him, then go back and take communion. Do it with joy. And so as we sing and as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you. And I want to encourage you to talk with God. Ask him, what fears are controlling you? What fears are controlling you? What are the things that are driving your actions and attitudes and behavior? What is it that you are afraid of that is causing you to live in a way that is out of line with God and his word? What is it? But also, how does the grace taught fear of God How is that good news that drives out those other fears? 
See, when you see God rightly for who he really is and all that he's done, you either become afraid, like Sambalot and Tobiah, because you realize you're on the wrong team, or you become full with a joyful awe of God because you realize that you are on the team of the one who wins in the end. And so you get to give yourself fully to him that you might live with not a fear of men, but in the grace-taught fear of God so that you'll be able to press into the work that God is calling you into to reflect with our lives and with our attitudes and with our community God's very nature and character that he might be seen for who he really is and that our neighbors and the nations might come to know and love and worship him. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful that you indeed are the great king of everything. That you rule and you reign and there is no one and nothing that can stop you. We're thankful as well, Jesus, that we do not have to be afraid of your authority, but because of the gospel and the grace that you show us there, we get to have a joyful reverence for you. God, a fear of you that drives out all our other fears. God, cause that to be true of us. God, cause a joyful, reverent fear of you to drive out all our other fears so that we might be a people who live for your glory. No matter what, we pray. Amen.